Galatians chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we unpack this section this morning. Our great God, the author of the gospel, we come to you and... Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would help us understand this text that you have inspired. You give us understanding and wisdom, and may we bear fruit as a result, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you are someone who likes to study history, you would know that one of the most fascinating and helpful primary sources that you can study are letters. Personal addresses exchanged and written by people living at certain times and describing their lives and their circumstances through their own eyes and with their own emotions rather than just hearing about summaries that historians have read or written years later. Recently in some of my preparation time, I spent some time on the internet looking at some famous historical letters of the past and I came across one that I had never even heard of before and one that I thought was quite interesting. One which Gandhi had penned for the German dictator and Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. In 1939, tensions were high across the world and war was very much on the cards with Germany's occupation of Czechoslovakia. But Mohandas Gandhi still had faith that Hitler could very much stop what he had started. In his letter, Gandhi described the impending upset as a war that may reduce humanity to a savage state and addresses Hitler as his friend and as he tried in vain to persuade the dictator to reconsider his actions. Historians know that unfortunately the letter never reached its intended recipient due to an intervention by the British government. And just over a month later things took a dramatic turn for the worse when Germany invaded Poland, turning the whole world upside down as Hitler continued on his path of destruction. Some historians ask, had that letter reached the Fuhrer, could it have been enough to stop him? Could the catastrophe known as World War II that we read about today somewhat have looked a lot different? And so many have been perplexed and wondering as to what effect this particular letter would have had. But the reality is, even though it never actually reached 
the Fuhrer, it is still an interesting one to read. Why am I talking about letters this morning? Well, this morning we come to another historical, famous letter. One which was even more important than the one that Gandhi wrote for Hitler. One which, believe it or not, had even more of a sense of urgency. One which warns of an even greater destruction than what was taking place. And one which, thankfully, by the grace and providence of God, did reach its intended audience, even though we don't know exactly how it was received. What letter am I talking about that's more important than any other letter I've mentioned so far this morning? It is the letter of the Galatians. A letter not to one particular city, but written to the many churches that were planted in the region of Galatia during Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. We talked about them back in Acts 14. And this letter was urgent, but why was it so important for the Apostle Paul to write? Well, when we look at the content of this letter, which is written to prevent further destruction in these churches, we notice that the church of Galatia, once strong in the faith and growing in numbers, if you go back to the second missionary journey, where Paul and Silas and Timothy go to those regions again, even though they once experienced that, now Paul is saying, quickly after his departure, absolute chaos has abounded. In light of the fact that there have been those who, just as in the case of Jerusalem and the reason for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, there were those who were going into the region and preaching that if you truly want to be saved and right before God, it wasn't just enough to have faith in Christ, you also had to keep the law of Moses. The food laws and circumcision and and all those things that were part of the law that God had given to the nation of Israel. And so though they had once withstood that oppressive teaching, now Paul is saying in the letter of Galatians, the churches have surrendered to the false teachers. And now they're going around saying, truly, if you do want to be saved, you must obey the law of Moses as well. And so not only was that a a catastrophe that had happened within the churches, but even further they began to question the apostleship and the authority of Paul. Saying, actually, Paul's one of those false teachers. He's the one who's preaching the wrong gospel, so really he should be the one who is warned against. People should be afraid to listen to him. And so, absolute chaos going on in this region of Galatia. Now, Paul writes in this letter, as we're going to see, that he does not doubt the salvation of this church. Because those who Christ calls, he is faithful to. But what he is getting at in this letter, and as we will see, is that they have begun to live their lives, which has abandoned the truth that had actually set them free. And as a result, it was affecting their own discipleship, it was affecting their witness to those around them, and it was affecting the worship of the God who had called and rescued them. And so we're going to go through this urgent letter over the next eight weeks. And we're going to explore not just Paul's defense of his ministry and the fact that Christ had indeed called him. And so this message from Paul is indeed a message from Christ. But ultimately we're going to see the Apostle Paul outline for us time in and time again what the gospel truly is and what gospel living really looks like. 
And though this letter was written to a church in the region of Galatia that needed to hear it, it is a timeless message which the church has had to come back to again and again. Because the reality of the true gospel and what gospel living really looks like is always under attack. We saw it in the the Reformation period, which the Protestant reformers had to deal with the improper practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And even in our own town where the question of the gospel and what it actually looks like is being questioned, this letter speaks to us. And so we're going to go through it together. And so we're going to start off. In chapter 1, as we've read, verses 1 to 12. Now, we've all read letters, perhaps, or received letters from people where people have been a little long-winded at the beginning. Maybe they're writing for a particular reason, but the letter begins with a lot of small talk, and it's like, just get to the point, just get to the point. Maybe you've had that conversation with people who it takes a while for them to get to what they're actually trying to say. I'm not going to even suggest who those people may be. Maybe I'm one of them. But the Apostle Paul was actually considered one of those people back in the day. Because believe it or not, the letters which he wrote were actually long for ancient letters. And one of the reasons why they were so long is because he spent the opening part not addressing particularly the issue which he was trying to deal with, but beginning with just lots of greetings and salutations, specifically giving thanks for the church. Look at Philippians and Colossians. He gives thanks for the church. He is thankful for all that God has done. He he prays for them. He says, I give thanks to God every time that I think of you. But Galatians, there's none of that. There's no thanksgiving. There's no long introduction, no. The Apostle Paul just gets to the heart of the issue. And so in this opening section, Paul comes out swinging. And ultimately, what does he begin to address? First of all, the most important truth the Galatians need to be reminded about and that we need to be reminded about this morning. He addresses the nature of the true gospel that comes from God. Paul says in the opening greeting, when he does say grace and peace from God, he acknowledges that they are saved. They have been rescued. They have been delivered. Now, there are many in the church that no doubt have not. They're the false teachers and have been influenced by them. So they may not be saved, obviously, but there are those in the church that Paul has ministered to that they have been saved. And so he says, yes, you are saved. But this morning in this passage, how were they saved? And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to get to immediately. How did they truly become rescued from sin and overcome the present evil age, which is the age of darkness, the age of sin, the reign of Satan, the the reign in which man is separated from God? But yet, how are they rescued from that all and brought into the eternal kingdom of God, given forgiveness for sin? How did it take place? Well, Paul says there's one gospel which saves, in verse 4, it was through Christ's giving of himself. You've been going around saying, Galatians, that you have been redeemed because you not only trust in Christ, but you also keep the law of Moses. Let me remind you this morning, the only way in which you have been saved, and the only way Elgin Street Baptist by which you have been saved, is because Christ gave himself. Now, the giving of himself, what does that refer to? Of course, Christ's entire life 
is a giving of himself. The incarnation, where he empties himself of his glory and becomes flesh. And as he goes and he he lives and he teaches the law of God. And he goes and performs signs and wonders to announce the coming of the kingdom. That is all giving of himself. But ultimately what Paul has in mind here is the very thing that all of those acts pointed to. The cross of Christ. That you are saved and sinners are rescued from sin only by the fact that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, went to the cross to die for sinners, to take the punishment they deserved upon himself in order that he may bear their sin and they may be rescued from their rebellion. That he became sin. That sinners can become the righteousness of God. The Lamb of God. Slain. Even before the foundation of the world. This is how sinners are rescued. And of course Paul going on in verse 2. Reminding the Galatian church that ultimately the cross would mean nothing without the resurrection. And so he reminds them that the Father rose Christ from the dead. And as a result, that cross, the message of forgiveness through the giving of the Son, is indeed true. It'd be one thing for Christ to go to the cross and die and never rise. But the fact that the Father did raise the Son shows the message of the gospel of people being saved through the giving of Christ alone. It's true. And of course, the risen Christ stands in victory over sin, over death, offering all those who repent and trust in him the salvation which he wins through the cross. Not those for, who want to be fans of Jesus or come to Jesus once in a while, but those who repent and turn their lives over to him, depending on his spirit to live the life that he calls them to. So immediately in this opening section, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. Church, you're debating about what it means to be saved. You're saying one thing, but let me remind you, there's only one true gospel. One true gospel which the Father has willed even before the foundation of the world. And that is that the cross of Christ is the only and sufficient way for sinners to be saved. It's proven true through the resurrection of Christ and is tasted by those who trust in Christ. Period. If you hear any other teaching that says that that's not the gospel, it's false. Because that is the gospel that the Father has authored even before the foundation of the world. And Paul's saying, that's how you're saved, Galatians. Elgin Street Baptist, that's how you're saved. That's why we have a song to sing this morning. That's why we can give thanks because Christ gave himself for us. The resurrection, he stands in victory. He offers us everlasting life. And forevermore we shall know the kingdom of God because he gave himself. Isn't that good news? And Paul goes on to say, you know know a good description of what that gospel is, Galatians? It's grace. He goes on to say that it is the grace of Christ, reminding us this great act, this great giving of of himself, that, that it wasn't fair, it didn't make sense. It's not right for us on this Thanksgiving weekend to be here singing songs to God. It's not right. 
But God in his rich mercy looked down at us even before we were created and has chosen us and has called us and has a great plan because Christ came to die for sinners. It's pure grace. There's nothing we have done to deserve it. Nothing. We need to be reminded about that. Nothing. There's nothing I can or ever would have been able to contribute to my salvation. I stand in victory this morning because of Christ and Christ alone. And so then what's the proper response to such a gospel? Well, Paul, when he thinks about the gospel in his letters, he cannot stop from exploding with praise. Because what does he go on to say in the opening section? After we talk about the rescue from the present evil age, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So this grace, this gospel, what's the proper response to that? Is it, is it coming to church on a Sunday morning? Is it just giving an offering when the offering comes around? No. The proper response to understanding God's grace and grace alone through Christ is worship, is surrender. We've talked about it when we read through Romans 12 this morning. It's looking at God's mercies and saying, God, I give you all of me. Give you every part of me. There's nothing I withhold. In view of the fact that the Son of God gave Himself for me and hung on that cross and bore my sin and my rebellion, I say to you, you take all. And that's not just only the appropriate response to our salvation. That's why we were saved. We've been called out of this present evil age, called out of darkness in order to declare the praises of Him who called us. We are set free and saved to worship the way we were created to worship. So even in these few opening verses, such beautiful truth about the one true gospel. The cross of Christ is the only insufficient way for sinners to be saved. It's proven true through the resurrection and tasted by those who trust in Christ. Have you tasted it this morning? Have you repented and trusted In Christ, this is the only way by which we are set free. And such such a gospel should lead us to worship. But Paul then goes on to say, but Galatians, this is not what you are doing. You are not responding to the grace that has been given to you in a way which shows worship to the one who gave himself for you. But no, rather, something else has happened. Now, I am marveled, I am astonished, and the the English word can't capture what the Greek actually means there in its totality. It is unbelievable shock that you would turn and say, I am saved by some other means and some other way. For they've turned to another gospel. What is that they're saying? Keep the law of Moses. You keep the law of Moses and trust in Christ, then you'll be saved. And Paul saying, I am astonished. You would turn to that. And so the rest of Galatians is going to be an expounding of that false teaching. 
and a rebuke of that particular desertion and abandoning of the truth that set them free. But, but that's going to be the rest of the letter. Here Paul goes on to begin to exhort some things to the, the congregation of the Galatians and to us this morning, reminding us that just as there is one true gospel, which does save sinners and rescue them from sin, we also have to beware of the nature and influence of false gospels. As he goes on to exhort the rally that there, there are other gospels out there. You've turned to a different gospel. Now, bank tellers, as they are trained, and I know someone who has a little more experience in that than me, are made aware of the fact that when they go out into the workplace and out there in the world, there are plenty of counterfeit bills. There are plenty of things that may look like or similar to the real thing, but they're actually not the real thing. And so when part of the training is to be able to discern and be on guard against those which are actually not the real denominations. And after Paul has reminded the Galatians that there is one true gospel by which you have been saved, he goes on to remind them the church, we need to be aware of the fact that out there in our community, out there in the world, there are also false gospels that may sound like the real thing, may even appear to look like the real thing, but they are not the real thing. And we talked about last week about how in this world there are many different teachings on salvation, many different religions, many different spiritualities, other chapters, buy a book, live a good life. But Paul here even warns that in the midst of all of those things, there's going to be teachings or gospels that include and talk about Christ. It's not going to be just out there teaching. It's going to be talk about Christ. But Paul says, just as the gospel that you turn to, there are actually no gospels at all. They're perversions of the truth. And so just because they talk about Christ doesn't mean it's the gospel that saves. I've talked to people before who said, yes, but they're talking about Christ, Pastor. That doesn't mean it's the gospel that saves. And it'd be very good for us to be aware of the fact, just as the Galatians had to be aware of the fact, that even in our world, in our community, just because someone gets up and preaches about Jesus does not mean that message is going to lead them to the kingdom of God. False gospels, we see it in the context of the Galatians. Law plus Christ. Well, we don't have... Judaizers or circumcision party coming into our particular gatherings like Galatia would have and saying you must keep the law of Moses to be saved. We don't have that particular kind of false gospel, but let me make you aware of some particular perversions of the gospel of Christ that are floating around our community that we must be on guard of and expose. The first thing is the reality of universalism. This is the teaching that through Christ's giving of himself, notice how it mentions the cross. It sounds like the real thing, doesn't it? Jesus died for sin. That's right. But what is the, the result of it? Every single person is saved. So whether you're Muslim, whether you're Sikh, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, all roads lead to the one true God. Ever heard of that before? Lie. Lie. Maybe you can find it in your local funeral home near you. And people are saying, isn't this harsh, Pastor? Well, if Paul was here, you'd be hearing something else. It'd be a little more aggressive. Because the gospel is not that every single person is saved. 
And there's a certain level of comfort that goes with universalism, isn't there? That everybody's in. That everybody's a child of God. Thank you, Michael Jackson. That's not true. It's not true. For unless you trust in Christ and repent and turn to Him, you're not a child of God. You are an enemy of God. Destined for the eternal wrath of God. And you can blame yourself for that. Because we rebel. We turn from Him. So this teaching that goes on in a church, few churches just down the road, that are saying there's no such thing as hell. Everybody's in, oh, 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 oh. You better watch out, church, because that's not the gospel. Not the gospel. There will be many that Jesus will say on that day that were even in the church who says, ah, Lord, Lord, you saved me. And he'll say, I never knew you. People want to get rid of that in the scriptures. People want to get rid of any kind of judgment in the scriptures. You get rid of that, you pervert the gospel of Christ by which men, women, and children are saved. It's universalism. The next one is the health and wealth gospel. Of the prosperity gospel. Now, interestingly enough, people teach that true salvation, if you truly have faith, then God will bless you with health and wealth. And if you do not have that in your life, if your health is not perfect, if your wealth is not increasing, there's something wrong with your faith, and truly you should be questioning whether or not you are actually saved. Does it exist in our community? Yes. Does it exist in many communities in North America? Yes. But that's not the gospel. Next thing is the moralistic gospel. God helps those who try to be good, so do righteous things, good, good deeds. Come to church, sing your song. Read your Bible. You, you earn in some way your way to receiving that salvation. And that's probably the most closest one to the, the law of Moses, which the Galatians were relating to. There's some kind of work. There's some kind of deed. There's some kind of thing that we have to do in addition to this to be saved. But that's not how men and women are saved. The next thing, family salvation. Well, because I'm a Christian, my children are good. But Jesus says that families will be divided when they hear the one true gospel. That just because the grandparents have come to church doesn't mean the rest of the family is saved. But there's a certain level of comfort that exists even within that teaching. Here's a newsflash. And I say this not to be arrogant or rude but there's a good chance a lot of family members aren't saved because Jesus taught about that families will be divided so rather than just thinking because I'm Christian and because I've taught them because I go to church that they must too be good no, their soul depends on whether or not they truly repent in Christ 
But all around, different perversions of the gospel of Christ taking place. And they exist in our community today. But where do they come from? That's the next thing Paul talks about here. Where do they come from? They don't just appear. They don't just show up. But they're taught. Even the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about false teachers that will come and preach something different to the true Gospel. And false teachers exist. False teachers are behind pulpits with Bibles in their hands. One of the largest churches in North America with 25,000 people every Sunday that meets in a football stadium is by a pastor who does not preach the gospel but preaches that Jesus loves you because you do good things and because he loves you he's going to make you rich and successful and live your best life now. Perversion of the gospel. False teachers. And what happens? People listen to them. They go home. They go on YouTube. They listen to them. And then that particular teaching makes a guest appearance at the local Bible study. And it creeps its way in. And it creeps its way in. What happens? Well, then you got chaos. Just like in Galatia. You got poor and sick people wondering if they're actually saved. Wondering if God's actually for them or not. You've got people desperately trying to seek and earn God's favor through doing deeds. And if they're not performing well on their own standards, then God must not accept me. He must not be pleased with me. He must not like me this particular week. You've got people treating everyone as if they're in the kingdom. There's no need for transformation. There's no need for preaching the gospel because everybody's a child of God, after all, in the same train. absolute devastation and it creeps in to churches. So Paul in Galatians, in the essence of this reminder is, oh church, be on guard. Oh church, watch out for these counterfeits. But if you're going to expose the counterfeits, what do you need to know? The true thing. The true thing. Now here's the other thing about this false teaching. The perversions of Christ. The perversions of the gospel. They don't save. But, in many cases, they will look, just even as the case here in Galatia, they will look successful. These false teachers didn't just come and affect one of the churches in Galatia. They affected every single one. It was a mass influence. And so, even out there in our towns, people go and preach universalism, and preach health and wealth, and preach moralistic, and preach family salvation, and preach all of these things. People are going to flock to them. There will be success. That's why you see people on Sunday mornings filling liberal churches. Because people like it. But Paul says, do not be deceived even by the success of the particular pastors or teachers that are teaching this, do not be deceived. Because what does it go on to say about them? They may be preaching something and saying you can be saved, but let me remind you about the faith they actually have. 
twice in verse 8 and 9. If anyone preaches something different than the one true gospel, what? Let them be under God's curse. Again, we say they will be under God's curse. What's the irony of the false teachers that are preaching a salvation? Not only does it not save the people that they're preaching it to, but they themselves will face God's judgment. They're preaching salvation, but they themselves are destined for hell. So don't be deceived by the success. Don't be deceived by the podcast and the YouTube videos that have so many followers for particular teaching. Even though it's a perversion of Christ, their day of judgment is coming. There's a day of judgment coming for those who are teaching the false gospel because they're not even saved. They haven't even trusted in the one true gospel. The reality of being aware of the false gospels that exist, their influence, where they come from, the fate of the teachers that teach them. Then Paul goes on in this last section of verses 10 to 12 to address another issue. Now that the one gospel has been reminded, it's been presented, that the false gospels and the nature of them have been exhorted. Paul goes on to address an issue which no doubt is one of the issues in Galatians, is whether or not Paul is actually a real apostle, whether he's actually trying to preach the true gospel, or whether he's trying to be someone who just wins people, trying to start a cult, trying to get people to like him. That's what they're saying. He's the false teacher. You should be on guard against him. But what's Paul going to say? Verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? There's a sarcasm in this question. You just heard what I just said about the one true gospel, and you just heard me talk about the false gospel, and you just heard me talk about the fate of these false teachers. Do you actually think, Galatia, that I am a person who's going around trying to please people? What's he begin to get at, even in this passage? Well, we're going to see in the rest of this letter that if Paul truly wanted to please people and truly wanted to win people's favor and affection, he wouldn't be preaching the gospel of Christ. He wouldn't be preaching the one true gospel that the cross of Christ is the only and sufficient way for sinners to be saved, proven true by the resurrection, and tasted by only those who trust in Christ. He wouldn't be preaching that if he really wanted to win people's favor and attention. And as we're going to see later on in this letter, the reason why is because the gospel of Christ, though it is the one true gospel that saves, is not one that pleases people. It always offends people before it heals them. And so what way does it offend people? What way is it perceived as foolishness by people? Well, here's, here's a few things. First of all, it robs them of pride. The gospel of Christ robs us of pride because it reminds us it's pure grace. We can't do a thing to earn it. But people want to do something. They want to be able to contribute something to stay. At the end of the day, I did something. I earned it. I did this. I did that. It just strips you of pride because it exposes you as a depraved sinner who has no future apart from Christ. You are worthless. You are destined for the wrath of God. That robs us of any kind of boast, any kind of prideful thought. Secondly, it insults our intelligence and our intellect. 
Ever been out there in the world and you preach the gospel and the response is, what kind of God would have to die on a cross to save the world? That is foolishness. It insults my brain. You are absolutely ridiculous. I don't believe this. Next thing is it calls for repentance. It's only tasted by those who actually turn from their sin and and trust in Christ, meaning it it offends their sinful lifestyle, it offends their gods that they bow down to. It calls for change and transformation. Paul is saying, if you honestly think I was trying to get people's attention and please them, I wouldn't be preaching this. Furthermore, just in case you forgot Galatia, if you go back to Acts 14, such a proclamation of the one true gospel got me not only flogged, threatened to be killed, almost stoned, but I was kicked out of the city. Don't you remember that? And you're saying, I'm just trying to please people. No, the gospel is never about pleasing people. The gospel is the one true gospel. Cure for salvation, but it always offends people before it heals them. On the contrary, the reason the influential false teachers are drawing so many crowds is because they're preaching messages the people want to hear. And so if you want to know the one true gospel, the only gospel that saves, Paul is indirectly reminding the Galatian church here and us that if we're going to be faithful to this one true gospel, we too, like Paul, can expect opposition. It's not about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God and the gospel that he has given to us. So Paul comes out swinging in this opening section, even in these first 12 verses, to remind us three things. First of all, the most important, there is one gospel. The cross of Christ is the only and sufficient way for sinners to be saved, proven true by the resurrection of Christ, and tasted by those who repent and trust in Christ. You have not repented in the biblical understanding of repentance. Today is an opportunity for you to be rescued from the present evil age and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. One true gospel, we give thanks to this. But yet there are many false gospels that are out there and they continue to influence and cause devastation even in the church. Beware, be on guard, expose them. And lastly, if we're going to be faithful to the one true gospel, we must, like Paul, expect that we will face opposition, but we cannot do anything else. We cannot run from it because the one true gospel which saves needs to be preached, no matter the cost. So as we begin to read this ancient letter, church, may we live lives that are shaped by no other fact. May we declare to the world no other message. May we worship God based on no other act than the cross of Christ is the only and sufficient way for sinners to be saved. Proven true by the resurrection and tasted by those who trust in Christ. May we give thanks this weekend for such a gospel, and may we give thanks every day to the Savior who gave himself for us. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we know that we hear truth. Some of us don't want to hear it this morning. Because the truth can offend us. The one true gospel 
thought of even before the foundation of the world that Christ gave himself for us and rose from the grave and extends eternal life to all who trust in him. What a beautiful act of grace. Lord, it offends our intellect, it offends our pride, it offends our sinful life. Confronting it, the very core. I pray this morning for those who have yet to truly trust in the only way to be saved, that they would taste salvation this morning. That today would be a day of salvation in their life, that they would come out of this present age and into the kingdom of God as your children, as part of your church. But Lord, we are also mindful of the fact that there are many gospels that are out there, but truly they are not no gospel at all. They are perversions of the truth, and Lord, we need to be able to recognize them, be on guard against them, and expose them. The world may hear the truth. We're thankful for the Christ who gave himself for us. We praise you and we exalt you. We ask that you would allow us now to go out to this community, to our family, to our friends this weekend, and proclaim the one true gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we think of the one true gospel and what Christ has done for us and the life that he has purchased for his church, let us stand together and close with, to God be the glory. Let's stand.